0: Alrighty. good morning everybody. Um, okay, last week we left off with the, the Hebrew people multiplying greatly in Egypt, and then they end up as slaves in that very land. Brian talked about that. So while they're there, hundreds of years pass. Hundreds of years as slaves, meaning generations were born and lived and died in slavery. This is all that they knew. The world of slavery is all that they knew. Now, they were probably tales that were told about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, but for all these people, it probably seemed like ancient and irrelevant history. They're just like, we're slaves. This is all we know. This is what my my parents knew, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, we were all slaves. But then Moses comes along, and this is what Brian talked about last week. Moses is actually, Uh, He's a Hebrew, even though he was raised in the palace of Pharaoh. um, And he has this uh, motivation of wanting to help the Hebrew people. So he tries to prove the fact that he is a a Hebrew by, by blood. He kills an Egyptian bully. He gets discovered for doing that and then gets chased off into the desert. And there he spends his next 40 years. Has a wife, has a life, has a flock out in the desert. But then he encounters God in the desert, speaking to him from what looks like a bush that's being burned up, but not being burned up. Here's what it says in Exodus chapter three. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro beyond the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great site and see why the bush is not burned up. Once again, we see God shows up in the most unexpected of places. Here in this place, Moses makes a decision that will redirect the rest of his life. Now look closely at verse three there where it says, Moses says, I must turn aside. Say those two words with me, turn aside. And look at this great sight. Now, there is a sense in which everything hinges on Moses' decision to turn aside. He doesn't have to do that. Could have said, I'm, I'm real, I mean, these sheep aren't going to drive themselves. I'm busy. I got things to, to do. I got places to go. I don't have time to turn aside right now, which is the kind of thing that lots of us say all the time. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to read some things out of God's word. I wish that I did and pretty soon I probably will, but right now I can't, I'm kind of busy right now. Moses could have said that. He just would have missed this moment. He would have missed his calling. He would have missed the Exodus. He would have missed the very reason for which he was born. So let me ask an uncomfortable question. How are, really, how are you doing at turning aside. How are you doing at that? A couple of weeks ago, I talked about going on a God hunt. I don't know if you remember that. Finding God in unexpected places. How are you doing with that? Are you finding God in some unexpected places like Brian talked about early in the morning, seeking Him? Have you found Him? It's a funny thing. We rarely find when we're not looking. And then we shrug our shoulders and then we fall for the prevailing lie that says, does faith even matter, really? Does it really matter if I take time to pray? Does it really matter if I take time to look into God's word and see what it says? Does it really matter if I show up on Sunday morning or Sunday evening coming up? Does it really matter? Does faith really matter? Well, God unsought is God unfound. God unsought is God unexperienced. But Moses experiences God here. He did turn aside. And look what it says right where we picked up. Now in verse five, here's what it says. God speaks, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God's dream for his people is not dead after all. 400 years of slavery has gone by, but God's dream for his people is not dead. He promised them a land, remember, their own land, a good land. Now verse 10, God says, so now go, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So the heart of God cries out from across history and from the pages of scripture, God says, I love my people. I hear their cries. I long for their good. I wanna deliver them. I've seen them, I've heard them, I've noticed. I wanna bring them my salvation and bring them my rescue. I mean, what a God we serve. Because all of those words that God spoke are not just for his people in Egypt, but all of us people in this room right now, and those that are watching online. God's speaking to us. God loves us as his children, and he wants to lead us and guide us into his very, very best for our lives. Okay, so there's all this good news, good words coming from God. God's saying, I've seen, I've heard, I'm concerned, I'm coming to help. So then he turns his attention to Moses, go. Moses, go. Go to Pharaoh, the tyrannical dictator of the most powerful nation on earth, who may, by the way, still have a bounty on your head from 40 years ago. Go to him, tell him to let his prime labor force go for reasons that he will never understand. Oh, and then check in with me when you're done with that because I might have something difficult for you this afternoon. (laughs) It's kind of funny when you read this, can you imagine the look on Moses's face when he hears all of these words coming from God? Well, at this point, Moses launches out into five objections. He's a lot like we are, five big objections. He's kind of like us in the sense that he believes in God's power. He's just not so sure about himself. So he doesn't feel up to the task, doesn't feel worthy of the calling. Trust me, I get this. And so his first objection is this. Who am I? Who am I? Like, you sure you got the right guy here? This is an argument from a feeling of inadequacy. And God responds very, very simply here. He just says, I will be with you. I'll be with you. God wants Moses to understand that this is not about his own pedigree or his power. It's all about God's presence. He says, I will be with you. So then next, Moses says his next objection. He says, okay, who are you? He says, who am I? Who are you? Like, if you don't mind, may I ask? Um, This is an argument about authority. Moses can tell from this call that he's gonna have to go tell others about this God, and he wants to know who he's dealing with. And God's response is short and to the point, isn't it? (laughs) He says, I am who I am. I am who I am. God reveals this great name, Yahweh, and he tells Moses that he's the great God that always was, always is, and always will be. I am who I am. So then Moses throws up his third objection. He says, what if they don't listen? This is an argument about doubt. He's wondering now. He's afraid that people are going to think that he made all this up and he's gonna look stupid and his own reputation, maybe even his own sanity could be called into question. And again, God is very, very patient with Moses and he simply asks Moses a question. He says, what is that in your hand? What's that in your hand? And by now, we all know that when God starts asking questions, things get interesting. So Moses just kind of mutters, "Eh, it's my staff, it's a stick carried around with me. And God says, Throw it on, throw it to the ground. Throw this thing to the ground. Moses does so and the text tells us that it turns into a snake and Moses runs away from it. Now he's afraid of it. So there's a little detail that's missed there in Exodus 4.4 where it says, "'Then the Lord said to him, "'Reach out your hand and take it by the tail.'" Okay, in the unlikely event that you were going to pick up a dangerous snake, how would you pick it up? Well, I've watched Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, Crocodile Hunter. I know if I'm gonna pick up a a snake, I'm gonna pick it up from behind the head, not by the tail. That's the most vulnerable place to put your hand. But God's saying, trust me, Moses, trust me. You're gonna have to get used to dealing with snakes and all kinds of dangerous stuff, so you might as well start now. Trust me, go for the tail. Moses picks it up by the tail and immediately turns right back into his staff. Pretty cool. God gives Moses a few other miracles, but then Moses is still a little bit slow to sign on to the whole deal. Now, in Exodus 4.10, Moses offers a fourth objection here, and he says, God, I'm not very good with words. I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now, even though you've spoken to me. I get tongue-tied, and my words get tangled. Moses is saying, God, I am, trust me, I am not a candidate for TED Talks here. I'm not even a candidate for Billy Bob Talks, you know, whatever the case may be. I am not well-spoken. Toastmasters wouldn't even toast me. I am not good with words. I'm not good at speaking, please no. And God says, hey, no problem, no problem. I'm the author of spiritual gifts. I can give you everything you need in order to talk to to Pharaoh. So finally Moses is out of formal excuses and he throws up a fifth, kind of a last ditch effort to get out of his calling. He says, God, please send someone else, just anybody else, send somebody else, please. God gets a little bit stern with Moses at this point in time and he basically says Moses go and I will just I'll send Aaron your brother along with you as a partner and in verse 15 it says I will help both of you speak and I will teach you what to do so then Moses sets out for Egypt along with a few family members it's a long trek but when he arrives, he meets with the, the leaders of the Israelite community, tells them what God's going to do, shows them some of the signs, and they all seem to be on board. I mean, this is good news, right? It's all going according to plan. The last little piece of the puzzle is Pharaoh has to sign on, and then they're home free, the last little piece. So Moses goes to Pharaoh, and, and it says in Exodus 5.1, he says to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go. We've all heard those words. Say them with me. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. It's a pretty bold way to approach the most powerful man on earth. No small talk. Moses just makes God's plan very, very clear. The people of Israel, he says, they want to pack up, go out to the desert, and meet with their God. Well, there's a problem. Pharaoh does not, he's just not ready to see his entire labor force go on vacation. So he says, Uh, Leave? No. (laughs) No. Not at all. Matter of fact, it says, why are you taking these people away from their work and away from all their labors? Get back to work. All of us have heard a boss say that at one point in time. Get back to work. Pharaoh thinks that the people are just being lazy. So he says to his generals, make them work harder and with less supplies now. So by all human perspective here, Looks like the whole thing backfired and is blown up in Moses' face. This is not what he signed up for. Now the people are all furious with him as well. But in the midst of all this turmoil and fear, God speaks a word of assurance in Exodus 6.6, it says, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out of from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. So even in times of conflict and pain and struggle, God still speaks a word of hope and he does here. So an interesting side note about Pharaoh. Those that are in business would appreciate this. Uh, these days you hear the term servant leadership, servant leadership, and you might see the image of what they call the inverted pyramid. The inverted pyramid is when the, the boss guy says that he's really on the bottom and he's here to serve everyone else as best that he can. Servant leadership, inverted pyramid. But like, think of who built the actual pyramids. <laughs> it was Pharaoh, wasn't it? Pharaoh says, I'm the top guy here and I live on top of everybody else and everybody else here is here to serve me. That's the way I like it, that's the way I see it, that's the way it's gonna be. Now in Exodus 6:9, it starts to reveal a pretty deep heart problem in the people of Israel. Here's what it says. Moses re- reported this to the Israelites but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement. Friends, discouragement will crush a human spirit. Discouragement can crush a human spirit. So these people are deaf to good news from God because they're so discouraged. There are times that we need to be reminded that a discouraged spirit keeps us from hearing and following God's voice. So God wants to say to us, don't let discouragement have the last word don't let discouragement have the last word god's saying i'm still at work and i who delivered my people so long ago i can deliver you keep looking for me keep finding me in unexpected places keep trusting me keep obeying because with god in the equation there is always hope and some of you need to hear that this morning with god in the equation there is always hope always So let me ask, where is it that you might feel really discouraged right now? Where is it hitting you? Is it a bleak financial outlook? Maybe a prodigal child? Maybe some kind of health mountain that's right in front of you? Maybe a marriage issue that's fraying before your eyes? This may have lasted a long time, but keep believing. Keep believing. Don't let discouragement have the last word, don't. Now, any parents in the room, you know that there are times when little children like to say, I can do it on my own, I can do it on my own, and often that makes parents proud. But when it comes to deliverance, God does not want to hear those words coming from the mouth of his children, because we cannot do it on our own when it comes to deliverance. The Israelites couldn't, and neither can we. We need to come to that very humble point where we say, God, I need your help and some of us choke on those words. God, I need your help. Now in Egypt here, the battle begins. God initiates a series of plagues upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. The first one is that the Nile turns to blood. Now this would have really, really deep and significant meaning for the people of Israel. Remember, the Nile had been filled with the blood of their infants for so long. So it would be significant for them to see God bringing justice because of the heartless brutality of the Egyptians. And the second plague that comes is frogs overrunning the entire nation. Frogs on top of frogs, frogs everywhere. It's out of control. Now there's a pattern that starts developing with Pharaoh here. It starts with these hard hitting plagues followed by what looks like repentance And then a cry for help and deliverance. And then finally, Pharaoh's heart becomes hard again, over and over and over, plague after plague continues. There's gnats, flies, dying livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness falls upon the land of Egypt. Again and again and again, Pharaoh seems to repent, but then he ends up hardening his heart again. In Exodus 9.27, we see kind of an interesting dynamic at work uh, here that kind of gives us some light onto how sin works. After the plague of hail, Pharaoh calls Moses and and he confesses here. Verse 27, this time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we've had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay. Every outward indication would show here that he's repenting. He even says the words, I have sinned. Sounds like repentance. In verse 34, Moses prays and God stops the hail. But look what we read right after that. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts again. So when the pain is intense, it's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I've sinned, I've changed, I really, really will this time. When the pain goes away, his repentance takes a hike as well, doesn't it? All of a sudden it's just not so urgent to him this happens all the time when people are experiencing intense pain it seems like their openness to God and spiritual things goes way up but when the pain goes away so does their openness to God Pharaoh here is never truly repentant he's just trying to do pain control he doesn't like not being in control not at all well the The 10th and the final plague is the most devastating of all of them. God sends the angel of death and the firstborn in all of the Egyptian households are taken. So these people who committed genocide against the Israelites now lose their firstborn. Justice is good, but sometimes it is unbelievably painful. So God instructs the Israelites to prepare themselves with some very, very specific instructions. This is the night they're going to leave Egypt for good. So he says, sacrifice a lamb for dinner, have it for dinner and put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of your home. And then in seeing that the angel of death will pass over your home as it brings devastation to the Egyptians for what they have done. It's not random, not just wiping out a bunch of people. This is justice being brought for the cruelty of the Egyptians. After this night, no one's gonna be confused about who's really in control. And it happened just like Moses said that it would. And the event became known as the Passover, commemorating how God's angel passed over the Israeli homes and brought down judgment upon the the Egyptians for what they had done for 400 years. And this, this whole thing, this Passover, would foreshadow the salvation that would later be brought by God through his son, Jesus the Lamb of God. So again, here we have lots of episodes, but one story. Lots of episodes, one story. Go all the way back, when Adam and Eve sin in the garden and animals killed so they can be covered with the the skins of those animals because they recognized they were naked. Killing of an animal. Not long later, we have Abraham who's told to sacrifice his son, but not really for real. He says, God will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. Later on here in Egypt, God says, take a lamb and sacrifice it. Put the blood of that lamb over the doorposts. This will be the way that you'll be saved. It comes full circle later on when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming out of the woods. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Lots of episodes. One story. That's what we'll pick up next week. Okay, Well, you bow your heads and we'll pray. We're so grateful for the wisdom of your word, God. It's amazing. The more up of your word, the more amazed we are with you and how you have been orchestrating this whole thing from day one until this very day. So God, help us to uh, have the lights turned on in our minds and in our hearts so that we might receive of your word what you're speaking to us, not just then, but now. Now, what are you saying to us now? And help us to hear and follow you. So God, we thank you for your word, and we trust that in the days to come, you'll continue to use your word to guide us, use your spirit to speak to us, and to to lift up our hearts when we get discouraged. Thank you, Lord. We love you, and we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.